0: Good evening from Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Kristen Welker of NBC News, and I welcome you to the final 2020 presidential debate between President Donald J. Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden.
1: So as you know, 2.2 million people modeled out were expected to die.
0: Our response is he is xenophobic, but not because he shut down access from China. Come on. There's not another serious scientist in the world who thinks it's
1: gonna be over soon. That We have no choice. We can't lock ourselves up in a basement like Joe does. He has the <laughs> he has the ability to lock himself up. I don't know. He's obviously made a lot of money someplace.
2: Let me talk about your Excuse
1: team me. I take, pre- re- I take full responsibility. It's not my fault that he came here. It's China's fault. And you know what? It's not Joe's fault that he came here either. It's China's fault.
3: Joe to let you know when Don't count on me I'll do it again
1: Don't count on me Perhaps, just to finish this I was kidding on that, but just to finish this When I closed, he said, I shouldn't have closed And that went on for months What Nancy Pelosi said the same thing She was dancing on the streets in Chinatown And dancing on the streets and, 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 Dancing on down the rain. streets <whspeaus> in Chinatown. And- Vice President Biden, your response. Simply
0: not true. We ought to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We ought to be able to safely open. And by the way, all you teachers out there, not that many of you are going to
1: die, so don't worry about it. So don't worry about it. Come on, look at New York and what's happened to my wonderful city for, for so many years. I loved it, it was vibrant, it's dying. Everyone's leaving New York.
0: Take a look Vice at what President New York Biden. has done in terms of turning the curve down in terms of the number of people dying. And I don't look at this in terms of the way he does. Blue states and red states, they're all the United States. And look at the states that are having such a spike in the coronavirus, they're the red states. <laughs> did things just to do them. Come on, I mean, what am I going to do? Just, just all of a sudden, just jump up and grind my feet on somebody's couch? Like it's like it's, you know, something to do? Come on, I got a little more sense than that. Yeah, I remember grinding my feet on Eddie's couch. Mm-hmm. I don't look at this in terms of the way he does. Blue states and red states. They're all the United States. And look at the states that are having such a spike in the coronavirus. They're the red states. But that's, that's, that's,
1: takes all the money from Wall Street. I don't take it. You, You have raised a lot of money. Tremendous amounts of money. What is happening with his buddy, well, I should, oh, I will. His buddy, Rudy Giuliani, he's being used as a Russian pawn. And I think you owe an explanation to the American people, regardless of me. I think you have to clean it up and talk to the American people. Maybe you can do it right now.
0: Vice President Biden, you may respond And then I do I, want to follow up on the election security. I have not taken a penny from any foreign source ever, ever. Forever, forever, ever, forever, ever, ever, never. We learn this president paid 50 times the tax in China, has a secret bank account with China, does business in China, and in fact is talking about me taking money. I have not taken a single
1: penny from any country whatsoever, ever. son didn't have a job for a long time, was sadly no longer in the military service. I won't get into that. And he didn't have a job. I hear they paid him $183,000, and they gave him a $3 million upfront payment. All right. And his son, his brother, and his other brother Are getting rich? They're like a vacuum cleaner. They're sucking up money every place they go. Not true.
0: Oh, he's never come up with a plan. I guess we're going to get the pre-existing condition plan the same time we get the infrastructure plan.
1: We did. You know, Joe, I I ran because of you. I ran because of Barack Obama. I am the least racist person. I can't even see the audience because it's so dark. But I don't care who's in the audience. I'm the least racist person in this room. That's a bold statement.
0: 500 plus kids came with parents. They separated them at the border to make it a disincentive to come to begin with. This is the first president in the history of the United States of America that anybody seeking asylum has to do it in another country. That's never happened before in America. Well taken care of.
1: They're in facilities that were so clean. But some of I've them haven't been reunited. Good, but just ask families. one question: Who built the cages? I'd love you to ask him that. To the oil industry, I'd stop giving
0: them federal subsidies. He won't give federal subsidies to the to the gas. Excuse me,
1: to the to uh, solar and wind. Yeah. You keep talking about all these things you're going to do, and you're going to do this, but you were there just a short time ago, and you guys did nothing. Success is going to bring us together. I represent all of you, whether you voted for me or against me. Success. Blue
0: states. Success. Success. They're the red states. Success. Blue states. Success. They're the red states. Success. For me or against me. Abraham Lincoln. made a reference to Abraham Lincoln. So don't worry about it. Come on.
3: The following is brought to you by Michael Bolick, The Joe Q Car Show, Dan Campbell, Olin and Angela, Jim Wright, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Politics! Politics! Oh, baby! Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics Podcast. My name is Justin Robert young joining you on October 23rd, the day after our final debate of the election season. No more primary debates, no more presidential debates. We are done for a very, very, very long time, and we will break down the swan song in more detail than my mega mix. I literally evaporated like four hours of my life doing that. It's so stupid. No one's here for me to play mixtape DJ. Ugh. Oh, ugh. Hopefully you guys like. We are then gonna do an interview that is politics adjacent, but it's something that I'm actually really excited to bring. You. It's not an academic. It's not a politician. It's not a think tank person. It's a real human. And it's somebody that has suffered with the consequences of coronavirus. He is a veteran New York City English school teacher, and he's going to bring us through the entire process from earlier this year, finding out, uh, and watching the escalation of COVID to what he's doing right now. I think it's an exceptional interview that we can all understand and appreciate. But first!
0: Former Vice President Joe Biden and President Donald J. Trump.
3: Top line, I think Trump won. And I know that that is a, I don't know controversial opinion with some people we are in back country right now everybody's very fired up but let me just go ahead and define the metric by which i am classifying this opinion because i don't think that we're all on the same page when we say who won a debate and who didn't win a debate there is one school of thought That the winner of a debate is the person that moves the needle in terms of the race. That there is a a moment in time that the world sees and all of a sudden they see the race different. At which point you begin to put a lot of pressure on snap polls and focus groups. And remember back in the day when they used to actually have the little like uh, uh, EKG lines? That would show people like focus group oh i think romney had a good zinger i think obama came off as condescending and they would go kind of up or down we got obsessed with that stuff which i don't think is invaluable i just think that it's not an opinion you can reasonably have immediately after a debate ends because if we're really caring about finding out how this is going to affect the election then we don't really care about what happens immediately afterward we we watch the polls for the next week and a half and we see what the what the what, what the press coverage is coming out of it it's the same reason why during the first debate despite the fact that i thought it was a twisted metal poop show i didn't like biden's performance and i thought donald trump's performance was slightly better until i rewatched it and realized oh you want to know what biden put that proud boys Line in his head, it totally screwed him up and he spent the next week explaining for it. That means it's a Biden victory. So. If we can't know that until later, then that's not the metric that I want to give you. Because I believe that rhetorically you can know who won. It's the reason why on my Twitch channel and I was promoting it here, I wanted everybody to come back and watch old debates with me because there are debates that you might remember being close or even having an opposite uh, uh, outcome that divorced from the electricity of our of of the current election you can clearly see one person was better than the other we had this with the 2000 election when we rewatched that even people who are like oh i think george w bush is a war criminal but he waxed Al Gore and Al Gore came off like such a haughty baby with his size and his lock boxes that it was obvious it's clear I believe that we're going to go back and watch this debate in a few years and we're going to understand whether or not Biden wins whether or not this actually moves the needle that Donald Trump won And, and I think he won handily It starts at the very beginning. Donald Trump gave his most coherent explanation of his leadership during COVID that we have ever seen. Indeed, if the guy that was on the stage last night had been behind the lectern during those COVID press conferences in the spring, I think we would be looking at a fundamentally different race. He was patient. He was forthright in uh, what his goals were. He qualified his idea of, of, yes, we're going to look forward. We're going to live with this because we have no choice. That is the kind of presidential stuff that people have been kind of wanting from him, uh, specifically during the moments of crisis. He instead decided during the spring to pick fights with reporters in the White House press corps, but now it shows up. Furthermore, I think that he drew a fairly clean line between Joe Biden and Donald Trump when it comes to how they would handle it going forward. Joe Biden was very dour because he's hanging all of this around Trump's neck. This has been a consistent messaging from Joe Biden. Indeed, Joe Biden didn't really do anything that was particularly novel, nor do I think he needed to in this scenario. But it does mean that he's leaving himself open to a engaged opponent who understands what punches are coming. And so when Donald Trump says we all can't uh, 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 lock ourselves in, we can't keep our economy locked down. Uh, I am an example of somebody that probably took more risks than I would wanted to anyway because I need to live my life. I need to set an example for the nation Joe Biden, on the other hand, was saying that we're moving into a dark winter. Positive versus negative. Now, you might agree with Joe Biden's assessment that indeed we might lose 200,000 more people between now and New Year's Eve. Historically, we want to follow the leader that has the sunrise on the horizon. Yes, there will be dark days. No, we don't have to. To let it tear us apart. I, I I can't stress enough how absent this has been from Donald Trump's COVID response. Like it's it's insane to me that he is just now uh, 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 pulling the sheet off the 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 car on this particular way of talking about COVID. He's not message disciplined at all. He falls for every piece of bait that reporters throw at him because he loves to hear himself on television. And so, will this be too little too late? Uh, signs point to yes. But this was easily his most coherent version. As for Biden, who is not a great debater, not a great debater, and this was uh, a not- Joe Biden against Paul Ryan. This was not Joe Biden against Sarah Palin. This was very much DNC primary Joe Biden that was on display tonight. He made an unforced error, and you even knew it. I put it in the Megamix, where he says... What is happening with his buddy...
0: Well, I won't... I shouldn't. Oh, I will. His buddy, Rudy Giuliani, he's being used
3: as a Russian pawn. Now, in re-watching the debate this morning... What I realized is he's not talking about the laptop, the Hunter Biden laptop that Rudy Giuliani was involved in. He's talking about the impeachment era freelancing by Rudy Giuliani out in Ukraine. That's the Russian pawn stuff that he's doing. When I saw that last night, I thought he was the one that Joe was the one opening the door on the Hunter Biden laptop. That is a gift to Donald Trump because now he can come back and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you want to talk about this laptop, we can talk about this laptop because I got a lot to say. It basically pre-auths Trump to get as dirty as he wants Because he's not the one trying to force it into the conversation. Now, because Joe is imprecise with his words, whether or not he meant to open that door, that door was now open. And at that point, Trump starts to eat him up on one of the most effective things that he did in 2016. Being the populist candidate. I'm rich. I don't need to enrich myself in politics. All these people, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, uh, Joe Biden, how much money did they have before they got to Washington? How much money do they have now? And it was at that point that all of the where'd you get your money stuff started to land. That's also the point where Joe Biden got into a very familiar cycle that has never done him any favors. First, he gets laughy. He likes to laugh a lot. Then he gets angry. And then he tries to be funny. And it's that cycle that brought us, listen here, fat, you want to do push-ups. It's what brought us you ain't black. It's what brought us dog face lying pony soldier. We're going to circle back to that in a second. Donald Trump used this open door very effectively because he didn't take the salacious bait. And this shows tremendous rhetorical discipline by somebody who I didn't think had that muscle in his body. Trump doesn't mention Hunter. All right. It's all about Joe. It's not about what Hunter did in Ukraine. It's about Joe enriching himself through his son. This also avoids the fact that Donald Trump would be picking on an addict, somebody for whom even according to the New York Post, had a very uh, loving relationship with his father while he was going through recovery. If Trump pushes that too hard, indeed, if Trump is even the one to initially broach the subject, then Joe Biden's ready built defense, as it was during the first debate, is how are you going to honestly come at somebody for whom has been to recovery? That of all the things, of all the emails that you and your cronies have been peddling through the press, the one thing I would encourage people to read is the, the, the notes that I said to my son when I was trying to get him through a trying time. I'm looking through this camera right now, and I know that there are thousands, if not millions of eyes looking back at me that know the pain of dealing with a son or daughter that has succumbed to addiction. Biden can't use that if he's the one that brings it up and all of the charges of corruption are about him and not his son. Now let's pause here just because I want to lay something out. I'm going to be a little bit more critical of, of, of Biden going forward, but I do want to address the folks who might have that rubric that I mentioned at the very beginning. The idea that This debate will be won by Joe Biden if nobody else that wasn't going to vote for Trump votes for Trump. If this debate is not looked at as a tipping point when Donald Trump came back gallantly at the last second and and swiped victory from the jaws of defeat, then Joe Biden won. So let me address that. I don't think he had a good night, but if that's your rubric, then yeah, Joe Biden, by the numbers right now, is probably going to win. Again, we went through, uh, are the polls tightening? In seven states that Trump needs to go seven for seven on if he wants to match his uh, uh, 2016 total. Four of them are tightening, three of them aren't. That means that Joe Biden's got a pretty good shot at winning this. And I don't think that he necessarily did anything tonight to knock him out of that situation. Now, again, we have to see. We have to wait to see what people are talking about in the press today, what people are talking about in general tomorrow and the day after, what the polls say about it, and whether or not there are specific issues, of which really the only major unforced error that he made was how strident Biden was about transitioning from oil especially in states like Pennsylvania, that isn't great for him. Certainly isn't great the more that he he thinks that if, if they have any dreams of trying to flip Texas, like, uh, that's, that's done. You, you don't, you don't want to get anywhere near it. And I understand that it's a more complicated point, but look, he said the thing. He was led down a path to say that he wanted to transition away from oil. He said the thing, that's bad. Other than that, though, Joe Biden's goals that I laid out before were don't have a stroke and remind people to vote. He didn't have a stroke and probably going to remind people to vote a little bit more often. But that's it. Fifty million people have already voted. We already have uh, as many people early voting As did in the entirety of 2016, with 12 days to go before the election. So, if that is your rubric, then I can understand you saying, sure, better Trump performance than he's done in the past, but who cares? A, less people watch this than the first debate where Donald Trump objectively did bad. And, Biden's leading. So, suck a lemon. All right, a few more moments that stuck out to me. And and here's another one for the, where the hell has this guy been for 3.85 years? The Donald Trump that talks reverently about the conversation he had with his predecessor, Obama, when he first came into the White House. When Joe Biden says that uh, uh, Trump cuddles up with Kim Jong-un, Trump says, yeah, you want to know why? Because when I won the presidency, immediately excluding Joe Biden from the president's club, I sat down with your boss and your boss told me that the greatest threat to America was North Korea and their nuclear program. So if that's the case, then uh, sorry we're not uh, uh, ramping up to war like you might have liked, but I'm using every tool at my disposal to make sure that we have a good relationship with a very unstable country that can be dangerous to America. Like, what? I, I, I understand that Donald Trump is red meat, red meat, red meat. He is AM radio and a Fox News rundown made flesh. So you can't say the word Obama without spitting on the ground. And that's usually how he's operated. But like that, when people, uh, you were getting some feedback yesterday that he was presidential, question mark? That's what we're talking about. You know what presidents do? Talk about the time they talk to another president. That is a strictly president's only thing to talk about. In the inner sanctum of only presidents Onlypresidents.com, they are able to, to gain wisdom from each other. That was shocking to me. Here's a rhetorical thing. So when you look at a question, when a question's being asked to one candidate, in my mind, I do a little math. Is this a hard question or an easy question? In the primaries, you get kind of a mix of both. Like every once in a while, the, the the candidate will ask Bernie Sanders, hey, what do you think about our health care system? So Bernie Sanders can just kind of go off on his, like, well, I think it's terrible, and, and that's why we need to have Medicare for all. It's an easy question. At that point, I'm going to judge your answer by exactly how well you crush that grapefruit over the plate. How many a rose into center field can you put this home run sometimes you get a hard question let's use bernie as an example again bernie sanders you just had a heart attack at an advanced age do you believe that you are physically fit enough to be the president of the united states That's a very hard question because there's no way to correctly answer it. You could say, yes, I, the old person with a heart condition, believe I can do it. But that doesn't mean that everybody watching or those around you really believe that's true. So you have to make lemonade out of lemons. I'm on a lemon theme today, apparently. You've got to turn it into something else. And so that's where my judgment is uh, on, on exactly how well you did with that question. In presidential debates, like the ones between the two candidates, there's almost exclusively hard questions. In fact, when the moderator gives one of the candidates an easy question, it's kind of BS. But Trump gets a hard question. You've separated families at the border. And according to this statistic, X amount of them have never been reunited. In short... You made a decision and you broke up families seeking to live the American dream. Whatever your stance on immigration, that's the thing he has. That's the pile of lemons he has. Now do something with it. The best version of this, realistically, is for you to tell a story that brings at least humanity to your Side, right? So you can, in the past, I, I would guess Trump would say something about, well, you know, we we talk about these families being broken up. What about these angel families that uh, uh, had an illegal immigrant uh, kill their daughter? Now they're never going to see their daughter again. So I apologize if if uh, some of this is is ugly. But let's understand that there's ugliness on all sides. That I guess would be kind of a you know, a, a, a primary Trump answer. The hardest thing that you can do with a question like this is to direct it back at your opponent. And that's exactly what Trump does. And even more impressively, he does it bumper sticker length.
1: But just ask one question. Who built the cages? I'd love you to ask him that. Who built the cages? Let me ask about Who
3: built the cages. You've got the issue. You've got the most jarring visual that encapsulates it. And you have the fact that the Obama administration did build those facilities. Now, were they used the same way? No. But who built the cages is true. It has all the context of a bumper sticker. But it also has all the the stickiness in terms of your mental recognition of a bumper sticker as well. Like, honestly, that's probably a very good example of what we were talking about in, I think it was the PX3 Extra on Thursday about Donald Trump's counterpunch ability. He's always been a very good counterpuncher, whether or not he is solidly on the facts. Rhetorically, he is somebody that understands how to end a conversation, to use the momentum being driven at him to shoot it back at his opponent. This is, again, where I think that the mute buttons really helped Trump because he wasn't able to focus on exactly where to jump in. He instead had to focus his energy on his answers, and I think it, it, uh, it ultimately aided him. The frustration that built with Joe Biden that eventually led him to get testy with the moderator that had him interrupting Trump more than Trump interrupted him eventually led to that Abraham Lincoln joke, which comedic uh, sensibilities may vary, but I thought was confusing and weird and fell flat. And that, again, is the worst Joe Biden testy, angry trying to be funny. It just comes off weird, especially when he's trying to be funny while also calling someone a racist. That's a, that's a high degree of difficulty in general to bring humor into a racist accusation. But gosh, darn it. If he didn't try and uh, you know, God bless him. Obviously Donald Trump had his own uh, flubs throughout the debate Uh, I don't know if saying to a room with uh, black people or Hispanic people or Asian people in it that you are the least racist person in the room seemed a bit chesty for my taste. And uh, saying that only low IQ people would be involved in catch and release can border uncomfortably on phrenology. In rewatching that today, it seemed clear that what he was saying was that you would have to be dumb to go back to a scheduled court date if you were caught, that the system is so broken that only people who didn't know any better would would go. Uh, But obviously, look, it's it's a flub. Both of them got punchy the later the night went, which uh, is what happens with old people. Will it matter one more time? We don't know. But having watched the debate twice, I don't think that there's a question. This was Donald Trump's best debate performance of all time, possibly his last. And it was so good. If you're a Trump supporter, you got to wonder where this guy was a while ago.
1: They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them I sure did.
3: The mailbag is open 24 hours a day, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Jason writes, on your podcast recently, you said there are Star Wars fans and there are Babylon 5 fans. There are Rachel Maddow fans and then there are Steve Scully Power Tie fans. Holy S, were you talking to me or what? Are there more people like me out there? I really don't watch Maddow, but your point about being too involved in everything describe me to a T. For the record, C-SPAN is by far the best place to watch hearings and stuff like that instead of cable news. I just wanted to say thanks for helping me get through this quarantine. I'm still stuck in my house, been here since March, super high risk for a couple different reasons. Listening and watching and you have helped me not get sucked too far down the political rabbit holes. I tell myself almost daily what you told me on Twitter. No one gives an F about Babylon 5, and that has been so true. My wife said to really write in and thank you. When I go down the hole too far, my wife just tells me it's Babylon 5. Peter writes, if you don't think that term limits are a great idea, then you can go ahead and unfriend me. Oh, yeah? RIP to an old podcast that I did called uh, Unfriend Me, but certainly term limits got their fans in a big way. Sam said, for a Russian propaganda agency, RT could sure use some technical advice on how to host an internet conversation. You guys who stream do a lot better. Justin writes, last time Trump won, I saw loads of people in the streets upset about it. I saw please to write to the electoral college to please make it so. Everyone was wrong. So whoever loses this time, who's to blame? The losing side? The winning side? Are we going to start shooting each other in a fit? Or at least protesting and rioting over the result? And who is to blame? Should not the losing side of uh, their sad times then take a hard look at what they could have done better? Or is yelling and screaming really the only answer? Is that what sports teams do? Stand in the streets with signs saying, not my team won. It's not my fault. Well, if you're in Vancouver, certainly. (laughs) Vancouver has a habit of rioting whenever they don't win the Stanley Cup. Usually the riots happen when people do win a championship. Uh, This is actually something that I agree totally with. At the very least, both of these campaigns are going to raise over a billion dollars. The thing that you can buy yourself if you are supporting one of these two campaigns is some dignity in defeat. If Trump loses or Biden loses, it's going to be because of decisions that Trump or Biden made. Not because of Jeff Zuckerberg, not because of Russia, not because of Iran, not because of the corporations. They had a billion dollars to get elected each. And one of them is going to fail, and it's going to be their fault. Kyle, he writes, As a lifelong Michigan resident and somebody who has been fortunate enough to visit all of our great state, your pronunciation of Macomb County baffled me. I broke out the county map to see if there was a Macomb County or something close to it that might fit the bill in the segment. Montcalm? No, that's been solid red for a while. Muskegon? Unlikely. Mason? No, you aren't that mush mouth. And then it hit me. What I had pronounced as Make 'em. I guess it was like Macon, Georgia for me, is indeed pronounced Macomb. Said much like Macomb, thanks to the inundation of the French in the early days of colonization. It's a great pull for a county to keep an eye on. The southern border of it is uh, 8 Mile Road, while the north is two-thirds gently rolling hills of farmland and apple orchards. While nearly a million people and a diversity of area within it, it will give you a great view into how the state is doing as a whole without waiting for absolutely everything to come back. Adam writes, I totally agree that if Denton County flips, it's a big indicator for election night. Of the other counties in the DFW, Tarrant County was one of the ma- many historically conservative counties that Beto had flipped in 2018. would be It would be a surprise if it does flip for Biden, but Denton County and Collin County both seem like they're up next. Both have been very uh, involved with volunteers, especially in recent months. Currently, both Denton and Collin counties are at 31% voter turnout after their first week of early voting, which is very much above average. From here, at least, things are looking very good. I'm cautiously optimistic for one or both to flip. Chris writes, In the last two episodes, you've doubled down on the New York Post Hunter Biden story being raw evidence. And both times, you've stated that the Biden campaign not denouncing the emails is essentially an implicit acknowledgement that the emails are real. The problem with this is that it sets a very poor precedent. There's a notion in scientific reasoning that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Hunter Biden stuff is an extraordinary claim. The burden of proof is therefore on the evidence, not on the others to disprove it. If that, if the Biden campaign were to start attacking this, then they'd be, then they'd by extension have to denounce any claim. That's the type of thing uh, that leads to where we saw with birtherism. Oh my God. I don't know how many times I'm going to have to talk about this, but we'll do it one more time. I agree with you, Chris. Indeed. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, which is why I think saying three people told me for whose names. I can't put on this is not extraordinary evidence. And we need to look at these claims very skeptically. Now, There does appear to be a physical laptop. The FBI subpoenaed it. We don't know whether or not the emails are legit. And that's all I know. That's all I've ever said. And again, when I say raw evidence, I mean raw. I mean, we don't know. But at least it is a thing that we can talk about. It's a thing that we can look into. It is a thing that we can prosecute. I don't, I mean, I, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. What do you mean? Like, I don't know how many times I could say this and, and have it be, uh, I, I, I honestly, I'm at my wits end with this. I don't know. Uh, it, nobody seems like it, it's the worst thing. Cause it's not even people disagreeing with me. I get disagreed with all the time and I'm willing to need an L. I'm willing to say, Oh, you want to know what? I was wrong. Or I'm willing to defend my position. What drives me up a wall is when it sounds like people are willfully misinterpreting what I'm saying. Because we actually don't disagree. I do think that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. It's the reason why I think if you're going to paint a person as saying that all military people are suckers and losers, you should probably have a name on it. If you're going to say that there's uh, uh, all this stuff with with Hunter in Ukraine, at the very least having a computer owner that we can, a, a store owner that we can then... Talk about the existence of some kind. I mean, there the pictures are real at, at, at the very least. It, it seems that is something that is not really even in dispute. Whether or not the emails were manipulated, we don't know. But I'm not saying that we do know. I, I'm saying that separately, it's odd to me that the Biden campaign didn't say this is Russian disinformation. That's all I was saying. Hachi Machi. Daniel writes. If term limits are so bad, then why not repeal presidential term limits? State politics and federal politics are so different. Half the people in your audience, including me, don't know that they're state rep or senator. Uh, still, I'm a fan of term limits. Look at the Senate race in Alabama. Jeff Sessions would have been senator for life, but he jumped out. And when he jumped back in, everyone rejected him because he lost all that incumbent power of money and position. Term limits for the win. I, as I uh, uh, pushed in the interview itself, I think I'm, I'm a fan of some kind of term limit. Like five terms for a senator. I think we're good. I think at that point we can risk there being new blood in the Senate. But some kind of like just not senator for life. Have a healthy career. A healthy career. Sistro. I sent you an email way back on August 3rd that Nancy Pelosi does not want the economy to get better because she believes it helps the Democrats win. It's now been over two months since then and she absolutely will not allow any relief to pass and she just lies and spins and babbles her talking points and counts on the media to cover for her. She is the most vile politician in America. Whether or not you agree with Sistro, I am here for any and all bile that you would like to spew toward Congress. And that will be the subject of a future mailbag. The Young American at gmail.com is where you need to go. Politics. I gotta say, I get why they do it. I do. I get why people pick a side. In the media. I, I, I understand... This year, more than ever, why it is the overwhelming choice for most pundits. Number one, the money's there. You understand who you're marketing to, but it's also a lot less stress. Oh, my God, what I wouldn't do to just be able to tell you guys exactly what you wanted to hear every single episode. Know when you're upset and comfort you. Know when you want to rally around the the big war drum. Know when it's time to celebrate so we can all hold hands and sing Yub Nub. But you guys are too diverse. I know because I hear from all of you. I know when I go through the emails. I know when I go through my ad replies that There are Biden voters. There are Trump voters. There are Hawkins voters. There are Jorgensen voters. And there are more than a few of you against her wishes that are going to write in my mom or already have. And you've sent me photo evidence. So there's no one thing that I can say that would make all of you happy. And that means that sometimes I make some of you mad. And that has happened throughout this entire process. I haven't really talked about it a lot, but after all the primary debates after all the conventions and after all the presidential debates when I'm either giving my opinion here or doing it on the live stream I will get attrition on Patreon people will be so incensed by how I am talking about something that they will drop their support and that's fine it's backcountry after all but it just makes me so much more in love with you guys that stay with me. You guys that know that you can get the Pod Save of Blankets everywhere And, and you can snuggle with it and it's gonna feel good. And in the world of podcasting, it's free. But you wanna support this as well. You wanna support somebody who is willing to give you his honest opinion even when he knows that some of you are gonna be cheesed off. And if that's the case, if you want this to exist, well, there's only one way to do it. TakePoliticsSeriously.com $3. It's all you need. Three bucks and you get all of the Unlocked content from now until Election Day. Including more stuff with Andrew Heaton and, uh, you know, what, what, will be one of the final two podcasts that we'll do before the actual election day. So, thank you. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Our guest today is a veteran New York City English teacher, and he's going to bring us through his entire experience Uh, trying to teach these kids in uh, one of the most populous school districts in the world. Please welcome John Bornor. Welcome to the show, John.
2: Thanks for having me, Justin.
3: We've got a lot of people that are very, very curious about uh, a lot of reopening scenarios, but probably none more personal then schools, whenever you're talking about the care of our nation's children, it is always going to be that much more of uh, something that people focus on. You are a, a a veteran teacher in the New York City school system. How well? Let's start here. How long have you been teaching?
2: This is my 17th year teaching um, in the public schools, and I, it's my 11th year teaching in New York City
3: uh what, what let's actually do a little bit of a a, a bio on you what, what made you get into teaching sure.
2: uh you know uh as an english major in college it was one of those things where uh really there's a lot of different things you can get into um as a career and it was slowly winnowing those down and um what are what are what, are, what subs- are the other options
3: uh if, well, if you i know, might you- ask <laughs>
2: There, there, you know, I had I friends that went to law school as English majors. I had friends that, you know, it's sort of like a, it's an all the it, it can be a bit of an all the above uh, major yeah. where you find your place. Um, it's not one of those that are tied directly to a career field. Yeah. You don't so, you don't
3: immediately flow into to one thing like I got. I, I, right. I, I went to journalism school. There was the assumption that you would then. Go do journalism somewhere at one of the journalism companies, and I, I guess there's not really that for for English,
2: right? Yeah. So, uh, and um, I was a substitute teacher, and um, I did that on Long Island, and I really enjoyed working with uh, students. Um, it, uh, I, the students were the best part of the job, and but working in the suburbs was something that um, wasn't as uh, as engaging as I, I thought it would be um, and uh, you know there was a definitely an age gap between a lot of teachers and um, I didn't uh, I my creative juices weren't uh, weren't really spurred until I had friends who were teaching in New York City and I ended up going into a program and uh, started working in New York City um, in 2004.
3: So when you say that the age gap was different in Long Island, uh, I would presume that means that there is just an entrenched group of teachers that just stay there forever. And and that's, you know, it, it's got a very, very set culture. Would that be correct?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's one thing that in urban education, one of the only constants is change. And that's only been exacerbated um, yeah. in the past uh, half year and so um you know that's a negative too. you have that consistent churn of staff and leadership that happens in urban education as people move up or move out um and you know there's something great to be said for someone who's uh uh worked in one place and got to know a, a community um you know when you just get dropped in as a as a 22 year old you know you feel a little
3: bit more <laughs> like an interloper, sure, sure yeah. uh, uh all right, so let's let's talk about the realities of being a New York City public school teacher before the pandemic. uh what are kind of the 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 biggest things that that were on your radar as let's not say problems but but challenges that you have to deal with uh, uh in in that role?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of that comes down to uh, the school that you're working within and the demographics. Um, I've worked exclusively in Title I schools. So we've had students that have come from, um, you know, some level of challenging backgrounds. And I think the greatest challenge is uh, consistent engagement with students and helping them weather um, uh, all their challenges that they're having outside of school to help them still be able to focus on what's happening in the school building. And that's one thing that you don't have that, you don't have that space now where students have that escape of being in the school building. Yeah. Um, And that, you know, that separation from the outside world instead, their life is present around them the entire time, even when they're trying to learn.
3: So when, when in in that perspective, we're talking about, uh a challenging family situations, challenging neighborhood right. situations, uh that that there is everything that, you know, really probably even for everybody listening, the stuff that we really defined our own childhoods and high school experiences were were always about the things that happened outside of the classroom. I I can remember some of my my friends' ex girlfriends in ninth grade more so than I can remember the report that I had to write in sophomore year.
2: Right, right, right and uh i mean that's that's a, a challenge to make the work you're doing memorable as well as you know memorable meaningful yeah. as well as you know targeting skills that students will need for life after high school
3: what was probably the biggest lessons that you learned as you became more of a veteran in your field
2: i think some of the biggest lessons are that uh if students don't engage emotionally um with something that they're less likely to put their all into it or and they're less likely to take away the same amount from it so you know students can um uh show that they've grown in skills for a particular assignment but it may not you know stick with them in the same way that if they were um, getting to an express uh, a viewpoint or it uh, hit home for them in a way that you know other assignments were um, more abstract. So uh, I think finding a way to make it matter, um, and sometimes that's something that on the face of it doesn't necessarily matter to a student. Um, that book that may not seem to matter to them, that uh, that period of time that you're looking at, the context to the text, the particular writer, you know, all those things may not on you know may not connect to that student directly but finding ways to get um both mirrors onto their own life and then you know windows into a new world that they actually are interested in
3: so let's let's go back to january february of 2020 uh, all all 10 years ago from that moment uh mm-hmm. and 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 bring me into where you are in the school year like like what what is your calendar uh uh, what what are your priorities where even in 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 the semester or your planning are you in january of this year
2: january semester um we're preparing students who are taking state exams um we have some students that are taking them accelerated some who are retaking them um uh i've taught ap language english language and composition um for a number of years and uh that's when you're really starting to get deeper into the content and um, the analysis. And uh, so your head's down and you're pushing through and then you got the start of a new semester at the end of the month and the start of February. So it's a lot of like planning for w- what do you have to change? Um, what units can you keep? What do you have to tweak from last year? Um, what's working for the students, what's not? And you know what are those dynamics? Um, uh with you know connecting with students because you gotta you new york city we have a week where students are just taking exams so it's sort of like that fresh start so how do you how do you get back into the classroom and uh get them reengaged in the doldrums of winter
3: all right so so when when do they uh, take the exams in january or in december before before or after winter break i guess
2: uh after winter break
3: gotcha Uh, so, so that happens and then you are, are, are rocking and rolling with your semester. So you, wow. So you, you barely got a chance to even get into the, 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 the spring semester, huh?
2: Yeah. So, you know, it's, it was, it, uh, it became one of those things where it became an abstract discussion about, um, COVID or Corona as it was at the time became something that was very distant. Um, I was someone who taught in New York City during H1N1, and, you know, at no point, you know, a few schools closed to be have deep cleanings and things like that. Um, initially, that's where a lot of people thought um, this this virus was gonna, you know, how it was gonna impact us. That seemed to be the, the ten of the discussion in the city. That seemed to be some expectations for teachers as well, and, you know, but as we bubbled up through February, it became clear that you know this was going to be something different.
3: How, what was your perspective personally? Like, like where did 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 you kind of expect this to be a kind of a come and go thing, or, or I guess maybe more more accurately, at what point did you realize that this was something far different than anything that you or really anybody had any had seen in their lifetimes? Uh,
2: I think uh, by March just the way it was hitting the rest of the world. Um, And it became clear that this was not going to be just, uh, you know, uh, a a serious flu season. Yeah. uh, Like what hit us in H1N1. And, um, you know, the the problem became, not only did we not know uh, what could happen, we also didn't know who had Um, This virus and then later on we didn't realize that you know so many people were carrying the virus without exhibiting classic symptoms that everyone was expecting. So not only could people not get tested. um, You didn't have people who didn't have a reason to get tested um, right away. And so uh, it took it took longer than you know, it should have to close down schools in March.
3: What is that scene like with your Kids, because I, I I remember being in high school and uh uh things far less dramatic than a, a pandemic uh, uh causing a gigantic stir. Uh, is that its own challenge, just to not only uh be be moderating the education, but also kind of I would imagine that you're your own minister of truth for for uh, uh trying to calm down your kids.
2: Yeah, I mean that last week we were in school um the attendance numbers precipitously dropped throughout the week and you know there's the official line was you know we're we're coming back to school and you know we were trying to do the best we could to keep keep things focused on um learning and um you know once once we once new york city finally made the decision to go fully remote um we knew as a school we kind of had to change and deal with the realities of the you know the temporary tent morgues and the um constant wails of ambulances and you know address the trauma that our students were dealing with and we also did that at the start of this year where you know we purposely set aside time and space to for students to deal with that you know they've Many of them have left more cloistered experiences. They may not have been like personally impacted, yeah. but their you know their social lives have been greatly impacted. You know, last year you had seniors who um, lamented not having that senior experience at all.
3: Yeah. Uh, in your opinion. And obviously hindsight is 2020 and there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, second guessing that we can have after the 100 year pandemic rolls through, but was the timing on shutting things down late, early, or, or about as right as it could be?
2: I think for New York city, uh, was, was different for, you know, in many other parts of the nation. Um, yeah. And you saw Washington kind of got hit around the same time, Washington State in Seattle. And they were uh, quite a bit quicker in taking certain steps and they let scientists take the lead. Um, and I think that's the challenge of when uh, politicians are front and center, it's harder for a politician to change their mind. It's easier for a scientist to have new data and suggest a new course. And I think early on, um, especially in new york city the idea was you know schools are uh, an essential without schools people many people can't go to work so at the very least we are child care which no teacher wants to be reduced to the idea of like you know a babysitter yeah but um you know at that at that basic level um so that impacts the city's economy so people don't want to close schools and we also know that you know For students who are struggling um uh, at home financially um, emotionally not being able to go to school has you know a a serious negative effect so wanting to keep the schools open made sense but we couldn't rely on the data we had which was horribly incomplete because you know people couldn't get tested and if you compare the testing to what we can do now to then you know it has a much more complete picture but you know, we had, uh, there was plenty of people in our school community that were waiting over a week to get tested, who were exhibiting, um, severe symptoms. And, you know, we couldn't do anything until we knew what those, what those results were as a, as a school. And so I think something had to be done sooner.
3: Yeah. And, and, and I, I don't, the answer that I would like from from this question is certainly not a political one because I don't necessarily want uh, uh, unless you would like to offer your own political opinion, but uh, more of an emotional one, I can only imagine that from your perspective, a very real consequence of things either staying open or being closed, that it's got to feel a little helpless, if not infuriating to watch a a a city versus state dynamic power play, which on one hand can be sort of tabloid fodder between the governor and the mayor, both of which are very strong-willed politicians who are, are not shy talking about their positions and their opposition to one another. But I can only imagine from your perspective, being in a, uh, a very sensitive part of this, it, it could not have been fun.
2: No, and I think, you know, cooperation is so uh, essential. And, you know, that's that's helped our school get to the point where we are now because we've had school leaders that have worked with um, teachers to try to do the best we can. We have brought in students and parents to try to make the, the, the best decisions we can. Um, and it's only through that cooperation that we've been able to, you know, achieve the modicum of success that we've had um, through this chaotic time. But, you know, the lack of clarity, um, the chaotic nature of will we stay open, will we close or you know, more recently, what schools are closing, what schools are staying open? Um, when are we opening? Um, who's going to make that decision? Uh, you know, that 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 was tiring as a teacher to not know what was going to happen and who was going to make that decision and if that dis- decision was subject to change.
3: So, so take me into that chain of command. Uh, uh, this, you know, uh, the 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 spring semester comes and goes. Everybody understands it's a patchwork. Let's just get to the end of it. Obviously, you uh, uh, hate to see it for for seniors who who now are not are denied all these traditions and rites of passage that they would otherwise. But that's just the way the cookie crumbles. You're now into the summer. Who are you looking to? What are you planning? Are you planning both a physical semester and a remote semester? Uh, do you have guidance on that?
2: Yeah, a lot of that was up in the air until, um, you know, late August in a lot of ways. Um, There's different models as to how uh, schools were going to reopen um, and what that entailed, how often students would be in the building. And who would be teaching students while they're in while they're in the building, who would be teaching students while they're out of the building? Um who would be teaching the students who have opted to stay remote? In New York City, that's um, over fifty percent of the students now. Um, high schools, it's it's much higher. Um, and that really put a pause on any of the work i I could personally do in preparing for my courses. Um, and, you know, we were able to try to keep things more same than different, but I know plenty of other friends and colleagues that uh, you know courses were changed, grade levels were changed. Um, you're working with completely new teachers. You're completely working with people that are new to the school, um, and you know that sort of patchwork um, and lack of consistency is something that you know happens on a much smaller scale in urban schools and. This year, it was an you know, explosion of that. It was exponential, where everything was up in the air for a good portion of the summer. So I attended you know, remote uh, professional development um, sessions and started trying to wrap my head around about the lessons I learned in the spring, about um, you know, it can't just be a, a day-to-day thing for students. There has to be a through line that carries them um, from one assignment to the next much more clearly. But as to what that was going to entail and how I was going to pace things, that was all completely up in the air.
3: How long do you have between learning exactly what your assignment would be and the beginning
2: of the school year? Uh, contractually, you have, I think, at least two days.
3: <laughs> so that's, well, I mean, and I, I presume that that is, that is union negotiated?
2: Yeah, uh, so you're you're supposed to get a uh, a tentative schedule at the end of the summer, and, and you know depending on your school and depending on the school situations, um, that can largely stay the same or that can change based on, you know who stays, who leaves, how many students come in that year, um, what is the budget going to be like. So, um, you know I've 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 had it in the past where, like, hey, guess what? You're going to teach this course, and here's another teacher who's taught it before. Um, Or I've had other times where like this past year I was, you know, lined up for 11th grade and I knew I was going to be, and I was able to stay within that assignment. Uh,
3: So, so uh, you guys are full remote or are you doing any in-person learning?
2: So we're doing um, a a hybrid model where we have three cohorts of students and they come in two days in a row. So we have, uh, so say the first week you've got Group A's coming in Monday and Tuesday, Group B's coming in Wednesday and Thursday, and Group C's coming in Friday and then the following Monday. And, um, but to try to deal with the the chaos of coordinating between uh, teachers assigned remotely and them just working with remote students and uh, people that are in person and just working with in-person students. most of our direct lessons are mediated through the computer so through google meets and through those um uh you know uh, other synchronous lessons that happen through the computer even when the kids are in school but we have supplementary support time um where content area teachers are pushing in to the rooms for students who've decided to do in-person learning and that's where you'd have like small group instruction um, expand on things a little extra help feedback things like that so um and then we also have office hours but a lot is happening through computers because reality is we couldn't guarantee who's going to be in the building on any given day we started out with um i think uh i think we're down to about 145 out of our 450 students who are um coming listed as coming in person yeah and you know, and we still have a number of students that have yet to attend, but that number was a lot higher. We went from about forty-five percent in person uh, or a remote to now um, approaching seventy percent remote. So wow. those those numbers have changed a lot, and um, and you know, if the weather's inclement, those numbers go down. So you know, if there's all these any any if it's if it's cold, if, you know, our windows are open, things like that, you can see you can see the impact on the, on the, on the student attendance just for that deck.
3: Wow. So, so you have seen it, so it started at 45 and now it is even lower than that. So less than half and and now more and more kids. And and I presume parents are deciding that they would rather go full remote than have them uh, than than send their kids in.
2: Yeah. I mean, the The reality of returning to school is not just returning to school as it was before. So, yeah. you know, stu- students are not, you know, moving between classrooms. They're in a single class for the entire day. We try to do things to get them, um, you know, we're not stuck in a seat for, you know, the five and a half hours in the building. But um, the reality is there's an effort to control interactions and, you know, potential spread. We don't have kids moving through the hallway. We don't have them going and sitting in the cafeteria. We don't have them going to a gym class, for example. And so um, that definitely limits a lot of the social interactions that students we come to school for. Yeah. Uh, But you know, we've tried to incorporate our advisory and our clubs and some other things like that to try to give those spaces. But again, those spaces tend to largely be through the computer
3: looking forward uh i guess i would ask you the same question that i asked you in terms of the, the the lessons that you learned from uh being a new teacher in the new york city public school system to to now uh what are the biggest lessons that you've learned and the biggest priorities you've learned in this uh this this last uh you know several months which i'm sure feels like a career's worth of experience
2: it definitely does feel like a long time um but then on the other hand it it's uh instructionally feels like much quicker because all of a sudden we are where we are now and it feels like we just started the school year um uh because you know being able to reach out to students make those connections um that's the biggest difference this year from last year is that last year we had six months to get to know students to build relationships um and this year we're starting where we don't know each other at all you know where we don't have uh, the same ease to assess skills um, quickly, and so it's it's that that's been a challenge. So, so how do you still find ways to get the sense of a school that you know relationships are important? How do you get to build those relationships through a computer that you know students may not be fully. Um, some students might be reluctant to be on camera. might be reluctant to come on. mic. um, may not be in a position to do that. That's one aspect is trying to get students comfortable and build those relationships. The other thing is simplifying things. Um, it's a lot easier to have an, uh, assignment or an activity that maybe your directions weren't perfect on paper, but you're in the room so you can help students through and they can ask questions yeah. really easily. Um, it is so much harder to get those ideas across um, to students, even when it comes to like, you know, simplified directions. So trying to figure out what is the most important thing. um, And I've been working a lot more with the history teacher because we wanna make it, we don't want more work for students to do. We want them to be doing work that's meaningful, that um, we don't want them redoing work that we can assess for the same skills. We want to find the, the biggest bang for your buck, the highest leverage stuff, and and to do that in a way that's a little more simplified for students as opposed to trying to recreate a five-day school day, a five, five-day school week um, with, you know, all these different pieces of a lesson, um, which was really hard for kids, especially when, you know, some of those kids were taking care of siblings and all that other stuff they couldn't they didn't have the same level of time and attention they could normally have um in a school building during the day
3: last question john uh, obviously you have a commitment to your kids and your school but personally where were you at in terms of coming back and teaching physically in any kind of time frame and was it ever a question on uh, whether or not you would feel comfortable coming
2: back well, I, I would say just uh, up the to come back, I have two small children who, oh, um, you know, I, daycares reopened. We felt comfortable with the, uh, with how they were doing things there. So that enabled me to have that possibility to physically go back. I had a lot of colleagues whose students, whose children were older and were either in a district that was fully remote or, um, only partially in school, and yet they had no child care. We had, I had colleagues who were taking sick days and then, you know, working from home um, all day long because they just, they could not find childcare care for, for folks. So, you know, I was lucky in the fact that I, I could be able to do that. Um, and uh, so I, I think Based on where we finally got to, reopening the schools, um, what was put in place did feel make me feel as comfortable as I could, knowing that, you know, as the New York Times had, published um, some NYU professors looked at our testing. So New York City's testing, and we just had our test today. Testing ten to twenty percent of uh, the people in the building at each school to make sure that we have an understanding, if Fred, um, you know, NYU says you need to test 50%, um, but, you know, at least having the testing, at least making sure the PPE was present, make sure that we had uh, entrance pr- uh, procedures, that we had socially distanced in the classroom, that, you know, there was at least some ventilation. Um, you know, those things got me as comfortable as could be, but knowing that, you know, There's still risks involved and there is no no risk situation with, you know, with this virus.
3: Absolutely not. And uh, uh, obviously, as uh, we move into another phase of this, uh, there will certainly be more challenges ahead. But at the very least, uh, we will know uh, what the boots on the ground experience is. And we will know that because of John Burner he is a veteran New York City high school English teacher and I know from uh, I, I will state for everybody the thousands of people that will listen uh, uh to this that our our heart goes out to you and uh please you and your children uh continue to be safe. Thank you very much. Politics. And that wraps it up for us today. Thank you to everybody who supports us at takepoliticsseriously.com. Quick update. There's now a Twitter account as- Especially for this podcast, the live streams, and the newsletters, uh, PX3 Tweets. That's the account. Letter P, letter X, number three, tweets, tweet, T W E E T S. Go follow it. Uh, uh, we're doing a pretty good job of keeping up, uh, of putting clips. From the live streams, it's going to be the place where you can always get the newsletter on Twitter and uh, know when new episodes come out, including emergency episodes for this show. So head on over there right now, uh, uh, twitter.com slash px3tweets. All right, let's also recognize the Titanic $10 tier that supports us each and every week. Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G, Jacob, Wilson, Dallas Danger Taylor, your boy, Craig... Zombie Doc Gazer, BMU Dodge, Jimmy Montana, Captain Bunzo, Cujo, Tally, Richard, Memory by App, Crookie McCrook Face, Justin Ryan, Egan D. Laser, Matt, who called from Labor and Delivery, Starfleet for Biden, Katie. Vote for Joe Biden 2020. Evan, Rob, vote for Gloria Young 2020. Vote for Trump 2020. Martin, Government Unfiltered, Neil, Archie, Darren, Daily Tech News Show, Adam, Joe, David, Jacob, DL, Stephen, Kyle, Chad, Miranda, Jenny, Robert, all the most non, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners. Glenn Wolf, Brand, Chili Scoop, Dustin, David, Just Another Pilot, Mike, The Gen, MacBook Pro, Leon, Frozen Summer, Jay, Pink, Andrew, Maine, N, Matthew, and James. Thank you to them. I hope everybody thanks them. I hope everybody is very excited. Titanic $10 tier. Join their ranks at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. And that'll bring a close to this week. We got one more full week of content, and then it is election week. Hold on to your butts. This is it. Don't get scared now. My name is Justin Robert Young. Until next time, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, still more talk about politics. This is the only program that talks about whole <laughs> oh, three. <laughs> Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program.
2: (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio